You are listening to the DFJ Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu. So let's welcome. Thank you. Well, good afternoon. I, it's been a pleasure to know Tom for so long, and thank you very much for interesting. It allows people to use their imagination what that means. I think you'll find a little bit about what that means today in my presentation and Q&A session. So allow me to tell you about energy, uh, energy to grow. So ever, in terms of an entrepreneurial experience, and one that has deep personal meaning, you have to hit the rewind button and figure out where did it all start. And I'll be very honest, um, it started very early. When I was nine years old, my family took us back to Colombia for a visit. And we were able to visit a national monument called El Paraíso. And after our morning tour, we were taken to the patio deck for lunch. And as we were seated and waited for our lunch, we chit-chatted. And then our lunch was served. It was sancocho. And if anyone knows what sancocho is, I want to talk to you afterwards. It's a traditional stew. As it was served, I noticed a boy off to my right who was approaching us, young, a baby 10 or 11 years old, a white shirt, white pants, and no shoes. As he approached us, I just kind of looked at him and looked at my mom. And he got about four feet away from me. And then he lowered himself to the ground. So I have my food, and he's staring at me. And so I'm kind of not knowing what to do. And I asked Mom, why is he there? Why is he staring? And she says, she, she explained, he's waiting to see what you will leave behind. I looked at my mom. I looked at the boy. The, and I just put down my spoon, and gave the sancocho to him. That experience left me with a perspective for life. And what I mean by that, that was a paradox in disguise. Back in the United States, my family had limited financial resources. But in Colombia, we had enough to go out and to share. At that point, I began to understand that small acts can have big impact, regardless of how many resources we have. And I think that's a key piece right here, not only for just an entrepreneur venture in and of itself, but for what we're trying to do at Store What's. So what's Store It's all about? We're about to bring 3 billion people the energy to grow. And how are we going to do that? We're building a micro-compressed air energy storage system that will be the most affordable, the most reliable, and the cleanest option at the distributed scale. We do this well, and trust me, we will have redefined energy landscape at that kilowatt level for 3 billion people. Our goal is simple. Do this well, and 3 billion people will have a choice, a cleaner choice, of how to of an energy source that will help them grow their businesses and communities. So 
So ultimately, any technology at the end of the day has to impact people. So actually, my, these are pictures for some of the partners that we've been engaged with. Up to the, your right is a picture from Emprenda. Patricio Boyd, he was a co-founder and in charge of business development for rural operations. I met him in 2009 via email, then met him in 2010 at InterSolar, and since then he's been very, very helpful with us and just visited us last month at a storage facility. He's been at the core of not only giving us insights, but also introducing us to the people who have operating experience for five or ten years in the field. So what does that mean? He introduced us to people who have an ESCO in Laos, people who have an ESCO in India, to people who have ESCOs in Dominican Republic and Honduras. That's just an sampling of the people he was able to take us to so that we would actually get to know what we really have to build. In other words, I did not want to guess. The other picture is from uh, my colleague, Anna Kaplan. She went to Cambodia, and she, she's been helping me on, on several fronts. And during this trip, her, the whole idea of microenergy and micro businesses was just culminated in her basically saying, I want to take a bunch of pictures for you. So she gave me about 25 pictures of micro businesses from Indonesia and Cambodia. You only get to see one of them. <laughs> so basically to her, StoreWatch already left a message with her. We're about providing an energy source. So this, there's much better productive use of energy that allows people to do more with less. And then the last piece, it speaks a little bit to what I did before. After graduate school, I went to HP in 97. And then after that, went to my first startup. And when IPO, raised, at a, a hundred, raised $100 million. That was called ZapMe. We actually launched about 2,000 uh, computer labs and with uh, over 500,000 users. After that, I went, uh, started my own business on a consulting basis, went back to HP, and worked on their Emerging Market Solutions team. If you go onto your Google, put in HP 441 multi-user desktop. And what you'll find is uh, not only press releases, but actual case studies of that project. And that project opened my eyes to not, you can't just take best intentions and great technology into these markets without having a little bit more homework in the field. And that you'll see in the way we've actually evolved with StoreWatts. Some of the things that we learned, insufficient packaging. It arrives in a port of South Africa, gets on a truck, goes on a road with holes bigger than I can imagine. And by the time it got to its location, because we were targeting rural uh, schools, it, wasn't, it was basically falling apart. The other part that we overlooked, oh my goodness, they may not always have, uh, the, if the grid's out there, it may not always be available. So guess what? We, we sent a system with AC. We did not decide to actually operate AC and DC. So those are just a few insights into what has shaped our insights for StoreWatts. What do we want to do from a business perspective? So I've walked you a little bit about thematically where I started and how I've shaped my career, but also how it's informed me to be able to look beyond the US borders and start looking how can I have that impact in emerging markets. So you've probably heard of the story of a lot of work around GSMA. 
that if you can provide a more reliable source of energy for cell towers, that by an extension you might be able to also provide energy for community services. You do this well. You go from here to here, all the way through the clinics and the schools. From a business perspective, you're looking at a $50 billion market opportunity worldwide. And from a person-to-person -person perspective, you're helping someone go from a communications device to a school, to a clinic, and to their homes. So the, when we first started Storowitz, what did we ask ourselves? The obvious question is, can we actually have really big impact? So we asked, can we reach even, how, what would it take to reach a billion people? Anybody want to know how many mobile subscribers there are here at present as of today? Okay, so we're, I think we're over five billion. Today, in the, the squares right there basically show you where the largest number of mobile subscribers are. So this will explain the path that we've taken. We have taken two trips to India. The last trip was spending three days with two of the largest mobile operators in the country. Basically, we wanted to go ahead and have a view of the landscape. What would it take to actually take this system out to the field? One of the sites was right next to a landfill. So we kind of know a bit of the, land of the, uh, of the, bit of the landscape there. So this, the next question we asked ourselves, now that we can reach a billion people through a communications network, what would it take to go beyond just that handset? Could we go to the clinics? Could we go to the schools? What would it take to help them with agriculture energy requirements? What would it take? to help them with their micro-enterprises, and what would it take to help them have better options for their home? These are drawn to relative scale, and what this depicts is basically the opportunity to deliver watt hours per watt of load. So in other words, earn energy storage per, uh, demand and opportunity for the different applications. So basically we start with one, and we can scale to a huge impact. To do that, you, we had to think really hard what's the best technology out there that we can use to make that possible. So how do we redefine the market space? So if anybody's read uh, EPRI reports, Sandia National Lab reports, you probably have seen um, segmentation of the energy storage space with 20 different applications. And if they put the number of hours, discharge hours at the x-axis, they end usually at four or five hours. What Storowitz was wondering is, where are the applications where they need storage for six, 12, 18, or 24 hours a day? Where are those, where's that access? That's because that's the markets that we're serving. So when it comes to where does Storowitz fit and where is the biggest need, it's in applications where energy storage is used thousands of hours a year, seven days a week, six or more hours every day. The depth of discharge, 70% or plus. And then harsh environments, 120 degrees Fahrenheit or higher. Lots of dust, lots of sun exposure. And when it comes to an economic choice, if you can do all that, can you last for 15 years in the field? 
So not, you don't want to give any, uh, in this environment, these types of markets, you don't want to give the consumables when it comes to an energy product. You don't want to give them something they have to throw away because then now you introduce a new requirement. How do you recycle it? In our case, a compressed air, uh, energy storage system has a 15-year lifetime. And you can add to it, you can redeploy it at a much lower cost than the alternatives. So with that said, storage is a game changer. This is just a snapshot of our initial concept drawings. It's an integrated design of tank and the converter. And if that was right next to me, that would be just about this tall. Here's a, a little bit about what our partners said. So we, Patricio Boyd, whom I spoke about earlier from Argentina, he has, is probably a, one of our biggest advocates. And he is definitely one of the people we want to do a field trial with in 2012, if not by early 2013. He has gone out of his way not to only introduce his potential partners, but we're also working out potential investment uh, introductions through him as well. I believe there are some uh, folks from Chile. We were introduced to Nelson Stevens um, through Patricio's network, and since then have re-engaged with him. He just won a project where he has six new microgrids that he has to basically do the entire energy solution configuration in Patagonia. After doing a deep dive on our technology, doing a, a TCO analysis, we're coming out in front. So with that said, we want and we will dominate energy storage at the distributed scale. And we will do it in emerging markets by making sure it's appropriate and it's affordable and it's something that scales. Because once you provide a better and more affordable, reliable energy storage system or energy source, there's more demand coming. So any, a platform that allows that person to add to it over time is a, has a very high premium in these markets. This basically shows you our levelized cost of energy. It's between 18 to 30 cents. And basically it assumes a couple scenarios where there's 18 hours of grid, for example, and with different levels of round trip efficiency. And those two obviously will change depending on the configuration. And this is very, very competitive with today's options, not just diesel, not just lead acid battery, but all the other alternatives like lithium ion, redux flow, and hydrogen fuel cell tanks. And in closing, I leave you with what we are, with a view of where we would actually fit in a cell tower. Just hit play. Thank you. And with that, I look forward to your questions, and thank you very much for your time. Good afternoon. How are you? Um, as a former basis leader, as a student from Stanford, it, this is closing the loop for me. I was always uh, you know, taking the speakers to the chat, and now I'm already on the other side. So I know that makes me feel really old 
or I, I made it. This is it. <laughs> um, so let's um, pull out our slides. So um, my story is actually going to be uh, the past and the story of my life and the choices that I made to be where I am right now. I'm going to talk about the, the decisions I made to choose uh, to go from becoming uh, a geek, a tech entrepreneur, a technologist from MIT, uh, to choosing a social entrepreneurial career, and now uh, back to being a tech entrepreneur today. So this is a picture of the community I was serving in Nicaragua when I was in college. Um, the problem that I was trying to solve was the water issue. Uh, there are two billion people without access to water, safe water and sanitation around the world. There are many definitions of social entrepreneurship. Uh, academics like Greg Dis will talk about uh, social entrepreneurs as those who combine uh, the passion and, uh, and the belief in a social mission with a business-like discipline uh, that tech entrepreneurs have in Silicon Valley. So I put the pictures of uh, Mark Zuckerberg and Rosa Parks, and you end up with somebody like Mohammed Yunus, uh, who won the Nobel Prize in Peace uh, as a social entrepreneur. My, my definition, however, is about happiness. Uh, I believe that, uh, have you seen this Maslow hierarchy of needs? Raise your hand if you have. So these are the steps that we have to take to reach happiness and self-actualization. Um, I believe that social entrepreneurship is really unique because of the, the following reason. It allows the entrepreneur to be able to reach meaning and self-actualization by providing the first step to happiness to those who are in more need. So you're really closing the loop in making yourself really happy and bringing happiness to the rest of the world. Now, I'm going to talk about a few eureka moments that I had in my career where I really pivoted my uh, life uh, into um, becoming uh, something that I didn't think I was going to become before. Uh, so I was in junior year. I was a chemical engineering student in, at MIT uh, looking for internships in the summer. How many of you are looking for a summer internship right now? Only two, three? <laughs> Nobody's going to work this summer. Um, how many of you are looking into entrepreneurship or starting your own projects this summer? Okay. So the rest of you are going on vacation and having a good time? <laughs> wow. <laughs> My times, it was not like this. We actually had to work over the summer to pay for tuition. Um, anyhow, so in su summer uh, 2001, I was a junior and I had to get a, a summer internship. This is pre-Wall you know, Street debacle, so everybody wanted to go to Wall Street and I go to Goldman Sachs and become an investment banker. Um, so I did my part of interviewing all of these uh, investment bank companies. I ended up having an opportunity to go to London, and it was a really great opportunity. They, they told me that I would have £10,000 I could use in any way I wanted to invest and show that I could actually manage a portfolio and have the lifestyle of a typical investment banker. On the other hand, I also had this opportunity to go to a very low-paying job in India, in Mumbai, for a local uh, company that made uh, pharmaceuticals uh, together with Merck. Um, and I remember having this uh, dilemma. Now, do I uh, choose go to go into an investment banking job that has the prestige and the money and the um, uh, glamour that everybody would want? Or do I go to India and actually uh, choose to pursue a career that would be bring me some more meaning? And I went to India. So what I discovered with this program, uh, being in India, is that I fell in love with my uh, cause. So how many of you care about something that you want to solve today? OK, tell me some of those examples. Which problems do you want to solve in the world? Speak up. <laughs> Education. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yes. 
social networks are making people less social. Uh-huh. Okay. No, it's a very interesting problem. The way we are interacting is changing. Anybody else? Infrastructure roles? Uh, say more. Well, I'm into construction. Uh, ah. uh, linking cities, making bridging, mm -hmm. making the infrastructure available to everybody. Excellent. Education? Mm. A very important one today. So, um, I mentioned this because at some point in your life you'll have uh, this calling, you work a moment when you really fall in love with a topic or a subject matter. And in my case, I was in India and I was looking at um, this problem, the problem of water, having uh, two million kids dying of diarrhea every year because they don't have access to clean water. And I realized that uh, this was my calling in life. I had to do something about it. I came back to MIT and I discovered that these big problems don't actually need uh, solutions that are really complicated. We could have solutions that are very low cost and simple. So I paired up with a number of professors and, and students at MIT, uh, and we put together this technology solution uh, that used ceramic filters as the way to treat water uh, for developing countries, especially in rural areas where, where you don't have distributed provision of water. Um, so we, we did this. We, we got some patents. Uh, we participated in some competitions, won some money. And now we had this uh, laboratory technology that we wanted to deploy in the field. And we're so excited about it because as MIT technologists, we thought that that was all that was needed, a, a technical product. And when we put it in the field, then magically all the solutions would uh, come about. So uh, this is how it worked. Uh, we trained local artisans to make the filters with local uh, technologies. So we would have these workshops uh, where we would develop these filters and then we created these uh, cooperatives with uh, local factories, small factories that would uh, store and sell some of these filters. Then we would go uh, house to house and then uh, sell them or give them away and talk to the households and educate them on how important this was for their children and the safety of their families. Uh, we had our own improv lab uh, in one of our offices. It was a, a bench where we would do testing of all the results of the treatment that we would have in the field. Um, and then we'll go and check how they're using it. For example, it's a typical kitchen uh, in Nicaragua. Uh, San Francisco Libre is one of the poorest towns uh, in Latin America. It's the second poorest town uh, in all of Latin America. So the conditions were really primitive. And then we would see them every now and then. You'd spot the filter being used or uh, in the kitchens. And uh, that was a really joyous moment for us. So this filter that had the ceramic component and a plastic bucket where uh, the water was stored uh, worked really well in the lab. Uh, the treatment efficiency in the lab was close to 95%. So we thought, wow, we got this. It's cheap. It's local materials. People know how to build it. There's no maintenance. So why wouldn't it work? Well, it turns out that it didn't work. <laughs> and, um, we are in, in Nicaragua. We uh, deployed about 3,000 of these filters, and the majority of them were not used. Uh, in fact, I would do surveys regularly, and people wouldn't really answer my questions. So at one point, I said, I really need to see the filter. You, you can't just tell me you're using it and you like it. I, I need to go and see where it is. And I was really uh, in dismay when I saw many of these filters being used as doorstops or uh, for plants, or they're using the bucket in the field for irrigation instead of actually using the filters. So um, 
I, I mean, as I said, I was a technologist from MIT thinking I had the technology, works in the pristine lab, why wouldn't it work in the field? And that's why I, I realized that obviously there was something missing and that I didn't know everything. And this was actually uh, symbolically uh, uh, presented to me when I was actually in the field. And I was trying to get close to some of the engineers who are local uh, since it's very important to uh, engage uh, in a trusted relationship. And um, I saw this animal on the left. What is the name of this animal? Donkey. Exactly. What is the name of the animal on the right? Okay, so obviously I didn't know that. And uh, I was talking about this animal and calling it cow, and everybody was just smirking and laughing around me. And at, at some point I said, what's happening? Why are you laughing at me? And they said, well, Rebecca, I mean, Dr. Rebecca, as they would call me at that point, um, that is a donkey, not a cow. So <laughs> at that moment... I went online and decided to apply to school because uh, I had a lot to learn. Uh, coming from the labs, I'm going to the field and really not even being able to distinguish something so simple as a donkey from a cow. Uh, that was really symbolic to me on uh, all the institutional factors, the cultural factors, entrepreneurship, economy, marketing that I didn't know that would never allow me to be successful in these projects. So I came to Stanford, uh, and here I studied uh, the social networks and the institutional factors that affect the performance and the success of these projects in the field. Uh, so I did a lot of studies in uh, Argentina, where I was still working with peri-urban areas uh, with a lack of provision of water, safe water. The conditions were as bad, if not worse. Uh, very poor families, but surprisingly, they had piped water to their slums. So I was going and looking at uh, these communities where there was almost no money, uh, but they still had water provision. As you see, there's pipe water next to uh, houses that are made of tin and cardboard. And I actually had to always walk with bodyguards because it was so dangerous that you couldn't even go there uh, by yourself. Um, and what I discovered with this study is that the institutional factors and the social networks were, in fact, one of the most important components in ensuring the success of this project. Um, now, the problem with being an academic after having been an entrepreneur is that you can't go back. It's very difficult. Uh, so I came back to uh, Stanford, and I had this long thesis to write, uh, three or 400 pages. I had a year ahead of me, uh, locked down in a room where I could spend my days in the library. Or, as I told my mom, I could go and actually do these things uh, and solve the problems and do it much faster. So unfortunately, having experienced the idea stretching my mind, I couldn't really go back to being in the lab. And I took this perpetual leave of absence and someday I'll come back to finish it. Um, so, uh, since then, I've been working uh, with organizations like Basis in uh, helping other entrepreneurs to make their projects happen. And my main issue after coming back from the field was the issue of scale. What I wanted to do was not only to focus on my one idea, uh, but as the quote says, uh, if you get a couple of ideas, they're like rabbits. They reproduce and make more ideas. And when you get a lot of entrepreneurs together, then it's even more exponential. Uh, so that was the initial idea behind Unoodle and the technology platform that we built, Podium, which allows some of these organizers, connectors, and entrepreneurs to scale up their activities by using a technical platform. Um, Similarly, we co-founded, as Tom mentioned, uh, the Cleantech Open, which is an organization that helps uh, cleantech companies uh, 
create their companies, get resources, get mentorship and funding. And since 2006, this organization has helped uh, thousands of companies raise over $400 million of funding and created about 2,500 jobs. So with this and the fact that, you know, if you look at the uh, average income of uh, PhD dropouts from Stanford versus those who graduate, um, I think I didn't make the right decision. Um, so in the beginning, you know, every time you have an idea, a crazy idea, and you, have, you believe in a cause and you, you, you want to make that happen, people will say it can happen. Uh, second, they will say, maybe it can happen, but it's not worth your time. Get your doctoral degree, go and study medicine, uh, get a job, a real job, and make sure you have a safety net for your life. But after a while, when you do pursue that cause and uh, you follow your instincts, you'll see that the choices you have made uh, were the right ones. And I hope in a few years you'll be right here presenting uh, your careers. Thank you. At this point, you can ask your question to both of the entrepreneurs or to one. Just if, if you could say your name and say whether it's for one or both and ask your question. Who's first? No one? Yes. Yeah. It's for both. Um, how do you make good decisions? <laughs> Um, well, first you have to know where you, what you want, uh, and when, when, once you're pretty clear what you want, um, there's always going to be a plan A, B, and C. So um, that's the way I've made decisions. I mean, um, to some of the pins, um, the Rebecca's points around pivoting. Went to HP, left HP, uh, went back to HP, but you know, went back with a certain goal in mind: emerging markets. Uh, um, when I moved on beyond HP, I continued to be in remote applications. So I worked at the Moore Foundation as a consultant for two years. We funded about $18 million worth of remote sensing uh, technologies for biodiversity conservation in the middle of the Amazon. Um, so everything was with an intent. So as long as you're clear what you want, um, give yourself some options and go for it. In my case, I always assume that I don't know, um, as I showed you why. Um, so I typically try to know who knows uh, the piece of information that I need to have in order to make an informed decision. Then I have a couple of uh, motives in life. One of them is that I always try to make decisions that uh, are going to improve my future, but not at the expense of the present. And that goes back to the investment banker issue. I, I saw so many, so many of my friends going to a career path that made them extremely miserable today for a, a future that would be possibly great. Uh, and I think many of them regret those decisions. Um, and also, depending on your life stage, I believe that um, being conscious of whether you want to narrow down your, your options by that decision or whether you want to increase the number of options with each decision you make, uh, that's an important thing to, to take into account. When I was younger, I just wanted to create more options. So every decision I made, I wanted to make sure that it was not narrowing the number of possibilities that that particular decision would create in my life. Mm -hmm. Next. Um, I was just wondering, um, how have you guys been able to align the interests of business um, with the interests of doing social good at the same time? Repeat the question. Um, how do you align the interests of the business and the interests of uh, social cause? Um, 
I actually believe that in order to have great financial success, you do have to have a, a belief in a social mission or cause. Uh, those are the most successful companies. Uh, one of the uh, latest trends is in using happiness uh, as the asset that you're selling and promoting. Um, delivering happiness from the founder of Zappos is a good example uh, of how companies that are pushing for the well-being of society ultimately end up doing better in the market too. I will echo that. So for any technology with uh, social networking or roads or energy storage, ultimately it's because you know, you have an idea of who you want to impact. Um, the business will take care of itself. Obviously you have, you want to make it as a for-profit endeavor if you can, because it's more sustainable. And if it's more sustainable, then you're really pushing yourself to make it sustainable for the user. Yes. What was the biggest challenge you had in your career? What was the biggest challenge you had in your career? I had no challenges. <laughs> Nothing. Uh, learning the names of animals. And, um, <laughs> um, I think, in, in, for example, in each one of these projects, there's always a point in the project where you think it's going to fail. Either you run out of resources or money or cash, uh, or in the case of Nicaragua, I remember that there was one decision maker in town that needed to be convinced, and he decided that he was not going to support the project and, and was not going to give us the permission to go to the community. Um, so you deal with those things. For example, in my case, I went to his office and I sat down there and I said, I don't care what happens here, but I'm not moving until you listen to me, and I'm not moving until you say yes. And when you're a student and you're young, you can get away with a lot of things like that. Probably today will be more difficult, but when you're 20, um, it's cute. So yeah, it will work. Rebecca, I think you could get away with it today. Um, the biggest challenge, um, staying, because we've had already a career, you know, multiple choices in our career so far, it's always um, balancing the practical with the, the what if. And the practical is always, uh, as Rebecca was talking about, is going back to that job that pays very well and um, gives you a lot of sense of security. But, and it's been saying no to that and sticking with seeing it through. Yes, sir. Tell me a little bit about how you assess talent maybe before, before you uh, engage in a partner or how do you assess talent before and after <coughs> you hire or partner with someone? Very good. So for partners, um, when we did our vote VOC, if you will, and I think you've heard from Steve Blank and others, get out of the building early. I think we went to about 10 ESCOs with operations in over 15 countries and at least five years of operating experience. That's what I was looking for. In other words, I wanted to see someone who has tried the best and failed, tried the lowest option and failed, and give me some of the, the real pain. Because I really wanted to make the better choice. Once I start down a road, I, I want to make sure that I know what makes other things fail, so that I, I'm designing around that, if you will. That's a partner. And talent. I'm looking for people who recognize that part of uh, success is failure. So the ability to recover. I really look for someone's ability to recover. 
Uh, in my case, it's uh, usually I start with a value system. If I don't have the same uh, values and morals with the person I'm going to spend probably the most amount of time at work with, um, it's just not going to work. So we have to agree on, on basic uh, tenants of, uh, of the values that drive us. Uh, second, I think it's very important that we have complementarity. Um, oftentimes, I meet people who have the same skill sets as me, and we don't really work well together because we compete and we end up uh, getting on each other's feet. Uh, and then the third part, I like people who are obsessed about something. It may not be the topic in question that I'm trying to build, you know, the, the, the actual product that I'm trying to build, but people who have a certain level of passion and obsession about something, it could be chess or it could be cheerleading or football, uh, they tend to also have an easier time getting obsessed about uh, the startup or entrepreneurship project that you may have with them. So I look for obsessiveness. Value systems and morals. Like, how do you assess those value systems when you're like engaging with somebody new? How do you assess value systems when you're engaged with someone new? Uh, so, actually, this was one of the issues or, or uh, events that made me go to India instead of stay in uh, in investment banking. I had a, an interview with an oil company, and uh, I'm not going to name which one. <laughs> but we had a, a very nice chat for about an hour, so everything went well. The technical part was perfect, and then he said. Let's, uh, let's chat now more, you know, chit-chat. This is not part of the official interview. Uh, but I would like to know, you know, let's say we have a national park with a lot of national resources and uh, nature, and there is a company uh, that will go to that place and create a lot of destruction, uh, but create, uh, at the same time, a lot of economic gain and jobs. So how would you feel about that? And he was looking at me like this. Um, so obviously that was a value-based question uh, that the company was trying to assess whether I would be okay with certain practices that were, were ongoing in the company. Um, and I didn't get the job, and I was really happy about that. So <laughs> I think uh, many times you can be very direct in asking hypothetical questions, but also in what is important to you. Uh, Tom has a, a tool that, that's called a trust spider, where you can actually align yourself in different aspects of communication, work ethics, uh, and values, so that you can score the compatibility between you and the partner. Uh, and that, that's very, very helpful. I have used it with our team. Yeah. Sure. Uh, thank you for coming to give the talk and everything, and great projects. Uh, but with all entrepreneurial ventures, especially with social ones, the entrepreneur themselves is so important. What happens when you leave? Everybody leaves a company one way or the other. So what's your exit strategy, CEO succession? How does the passion stay in the company? once you're not there. So what happens when you leave? What's your executive succession strategy? How do you keep the passion in the company after you leave? Uh, it's a great question. Um, I, I'm just thinking right now, I have a, a, one of them, one of the two people I have in mind, Tom has met a couple times. Uh, extremely spirited, um, also aligned on values. Uh, she's making some tough choices to try to stay very close to social entrepreneurship. Um, that type of talent, the way I scout for that uh, at this stage is literally I come to some of the Stanford events, classes I've sat in, and I just look and I'm watching and I'm trying to feel, get a feel for what could be possible in, in terms of bringing in someone um, early on so that they, I can mentor them. And I've done that with one in particular individual for about two years. 
uh, just to bring them on and mentor them. Exit plan, um, I haven't really, I've put some thought into it, but there's so much work ahead of us. Um, but I think there is an exit plan. I think the exit plan probably will look at it once we're scale, going from tens and hundreds to tens and hundreds of thousands of units. Uh, in my case, I feel, I really feel strongly that the best companies in the world don't have um, a good product alone. They have a great personality that stays uh, beyond the, the founder, the CEO, or, or the product line that they, ha that they have today. So Apple is a great example of you know, the, the character that the company has with or without Steve Jobs. You, you know the personality of the company. And, and that's a really big challenge. So for example, at our company, company at Unoodle, we are creating that right now. We have 14 people. And very intentionally, we, we are setting some parameters of what that personality will look like. So one of the things that we do as a joke is, um, have you seen the Honey Badger video on YouTube? OK, so there are things about the Honey Badger that I love the tenacity, fearlessness, uh, persistence, uh, obsession and passion for that honey that it has to get no matter how many bees are going to bite him. Um, so we, we joke a lot about honey badgers. We give awards uh, within the company that's a honey badger badge for people who go really outside of their duty, uh, beyond their duty call to do something that's really you know, tenacious and, and fearless. Um, and I think those personalities actually stay on. It doesn't matter if I leave tomorrow. Uh, that will make sure that the company continues to attract the right talent and uh, survive over time. In the far back. How do you manage uh, to balance your work life with whatever else is in your life? <laughs> how, do you, how do you manage to balance your work life with whatever else is in your life? Good questions for both of them, because they, they, you know how to juggle, so two different ways. I actually don't know the answer to that question. <laughs> I'm hoping to learn from you. Oh. <laughs> wow, okay. So I've, I've been called a really good juggler. Um, I can, yes, I can have a lot of balls in the air. Um, but the only reason I can keep them up there is because I have an amazing family. Um, the kind of very highs and some lows that go as part the nature of starting your own thing it requires that type of support and it's an intense level of support and I couldn't be more grateful to my family for making that as an extension of that I have amazing people around me who guide me um, in give, making some very uh, tough decisions in less time and with more clarity so with that type of support, um, I can have a family. Yes, I have two children. <laughs> and, uh, and still have time for baseball, soccer, track, etc. <laughs> um, I don't have balance. Uh, so I can't really BS about it. My fiance is here in the audience and he'll say she doesn't. So <laughs> I, I'm not going to lie about it. But there's one lesson that, lesson that I learned since, since school, which is that before, I used to push myself until I crashed. And then I took two or three weeks to recover and you know, went back to work and, and had the same level of intensity. Now I know exactly when I'm going to crash. So maybe like two days before I'm going to crash, I stop. So I don't have to go through a long recovery period, but I just have to have maybe a weekend to recover. So it's just understanding you know, the finesse between I'm crashing between, and, and I'm about to crash. 
<laughs> yes. Paraphrase the question: When you're doing a technology venture that has impact, is it the people problems or the technological problems that are the more the greater challenge? Um, if you put those two together, you're probably going to have a conversation about business model. So that's really the challenge. It's not one or the other; it's the business model. And uh, there will be theft, and there will be attempts. Um, we met with the CEO and founder of a very large ESCO in India about in Palo Alto three weeks ago. And he said that in one instance, uh, so they know that their solar panels are, are stolen. Uh, so they said, okay, that's it. We're going to put on a huge cylinder cement. You know, no one can take that now. It's like cemented on there. You can't move it. Well, they had, I think, three instances where they just cut right through that cement and took it. And they actually found out that one of the three was actually a dowry. So something you gave uh, so for your daughter to get married. So we, made, we were, we were like left a little bit with our mouths hanging open. And we're like, really? So I made a little joke. I go, well, at least you know she'll be married for 20 years. <laughs> um, I think you have to have both always. You can have technology without the um, cultural institutional issues around it. Uh, but I do think that technology has a, a potential to truly disrupt in a very sh short time period. Um, the issue is choosing the right technology for the right place at the right time. Um, and you can innovate or you can recycle the technologies that are out there. But it, it will always combine uh, both aspects for the project. Yeah. Um, that's a very, very good question. Yes, the question is, uh, am I certain that bringing technologies to communities that don't have it is a good thing? It's a moral thing, right? Um, I was really torn when I was in Nicaragua, and I was pushing this new technology that I developed in the lab. And uh, most of the impact that I was having was actually um, influencing the community to want to have Nikes just like mine. You know, it was the unintended consequence was that I was pushing cultural uh, values that were not necessarily important in, in Nicaragua. And then I was looking at the happiness level that I perceived. Maybe I was misperceiving it, but at least what I could uh, capture from my interactions with people, um, I was, seemed to be pretty high. People seemed to be quite satisfied with their lives, even though they didn't have much. Uh, and then half of my friends back at MIT were on Prozac. Uh, where they had access to so many things. So I think that's a very, very important question that everybody in a social entrepreneurship project should take into account and have in the back of your mind or their minds uh, while implementing it. Um, 
But I do believe strongly in the role of technology in solving this problem. So it's about finding the right cultural framework to do it. I, I, I will agree. Uh, moral certainty, that sounds a little bit above my pay scale, but uh, <laughs> uh, certainty that, that we will have a, a much more positive impact, I, I believe so very strongly. I see what we do with lead-acid batteries here in the United States when we ship uh, over a quarter of them to Mexico, and they're not, although we can say we have a 98, 99% recycling rate, but uh, up to a third of that is sent to Mexico, and you've seen the pictures if you look at New York Times article, what they how those are, you know, well, how they're handled in Mexico. Um, I don't want to see that. Um, I think that people should have a real choice of a cleaner and more affordable option. And we've chosen compressed air energy storage because it has properties where you're not introducing toxic and hazardous materials to people who may not have the way, either the skill set or the infrastructure to handle it properly. Here's something I'd like to do. Uh, there are people from all over the world here who don't know each other. I'd like you to take 60 seconds, turn to someone sitting to your right or left or behind you, and meet them and think of a good question that you can ask our entrepreneurs. Go, 60 seconds. We've got eight minutes left. Who wants to be first? No hands? Come on. Given that there's so many problems in the world that needs to be solved, how do you go about selecting which problem am I going to solve and how do I know how to make a business model that could scale uh, and that it would be a sustainable business and that would help those solve that problem? So how do you pick the problem? How do you know it will scale? Okay. That, so Storage is all about one goal, energy to grow. And how did I come to that? Because ever since I was in that story from nine years old and onward, I knew I wanted to be one big part of as many people's lives as possible. And that one part is be a part of their best efforts to achieve their goals. Because if I do that, there will be a multiplier effect. And that, when, so when I thought about StoreWatts and we talked about it amongst ourselves, it was how can you have a multiplier effect? Be, so people are already trying to earn as much as they can through either farming or microenterprises, going to school, studying at night as much as possible. How can we have an impact that, in their best efforts so they can reach the next multiplier effect in their productivity or in their academic interests? So that's one. It's, 
That's, that was the theme. Find a way to be a part of someone's best efforts to achieve their goals. You will have a multiplier effect. The second piece is to have a roadmap. So once you are in a, in a position to enable someone to accomplish the first task, the second task, the third task, figure out how, how much of an impact that is. So when I saw, presented the bubbles, it's because that's exactly how we thought. That's exactly how we saw the market, is we come in at the communication level because that's something we can leverage. But we see through how we can impact the rest of their lives, and the opportunity is huge. But it has to be the right choice, i.e. technology, people, business model. Because i.e., oh, when you go in and small, you should assume that your technology does three things. It scales at a lower cost than your competitor. Um, I think you have to fall in love with a, with a problem or an issue. The, the path of a social entrepreneur uh, and an entrepreneur in general is so difficult. It, you're going to be miserable 80% of the time. And then you know, 20% of the time you'll say, wow, I'm doing something great for humanity. But it's so hard that if you don't fall in love with it, um, you will drop out. You will quit sooner, and, sooner or later. Um, the second thing is that you have to find people to do it with because if you're alone, again, it's just, just going to be too difficult. Um, so I would go out, look around for problems and you'll see that one of them will resonate with you for whatever reason, because you care about the problem or because your skill set and background is the best fit to solve that problem. And then you'll find other people you can resonate with who are also as passionate as you uh, about that particular problem. And then you're, you're set. It's uh, history from there. Isn't that contrary to what you said earlier, though, about not sacrificing the presses if you're miserable 80% of the time? <laughs> wow, I was called on my <laughs> inconsistency. It's, it's very true. Rebecca, he, nobody heard him. So. Okay, the question is, isn't that inconsistent to what I said before, that if I, I shouldn't, uh, uh, forego the present, sacrifice the present for the future, then why am I choosing an entrepreneurial career that makes me miserable most of the time? Um, and I think actually it has to do with the pyramid again. I've been thinking about this question a lot recently because I have no balance. And uh, I, I was feeling very stretched. Uh, and I believe that there are some people whose path to self-actualization only comes through these big ambitions and extremely challenging problems that you want to solve. Without trying, um, at least people like myself are not going to reach that level of meaning and self-actualization. So I don't actually have an option. If I could be born again and I could be just as happy without having all of these ambitious goals, probably that would be easier. Um, and you can see the happiness in this of different countries, and you'll see that some countries uh, definitely have happier people. Uh, Denmark number one always. Yeah. One last question. Yes. Uh, so where do you go to get funding? Because VC days usually don't like to fund a company that is less than a billion. Right? So where do you go to get funding? Because VCs don't like mm -hmm. companies that have a potential market cap yeah, less than a billion. So um, I, my answer will be with a caveat. The VC landscape is changing dramatically and has been for the last three years. And I think it's going to change again. I think you're going to see a lot of um, VC firms, uh, a lot of people who wear a bit large VC firms go into smaller <laughs> firms. And that, I think that might be actually a good thing. Um, so with that said, all the math changes, right? So all of a sudden, it's not just a billion. It could be something smaller. 
That said, when we have uh, engaged thus far, we have actually had more traction with international investors who are much more familiar with the markets and the culture and can, would serve us probably um, very well in terms of guidance to grow the company in the areas that we're targeting. They're also cost-driven VCs and investors. A lot of angels um, invest in things that they really care about and in stories that they care about. Uh, so you can look for those people who have a good fit with your project. But now we have uh, potentially crowdfunding picking up in a few months. So I think that will open up a lot of opportunities for social entrepreneurs. With that, let's thank our two entrepreneurs. Thank you. You have been listening to the Draper Fisher Jurvetson Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find additional podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu.